within the nature of a port town that people come and go. Situated between Rosmolion Head and Pendennis Point, Falmouth Bay curves around the Helfer River estuaries and the mouth of the River Fal, opening a waterway from the sea inland. Dotted with sailboats and navy ships, Falmouth Harbour has seen a lot of history go by. 1661 sees King Charles II give Falmouth a royal charter. He was honored for this with the construction of a church dedicated to his father, King Charles the Martyr, also the site of the town's first churchyard. A few years later, in 1688, the town becomes a royal mail station, which allowed for the use of its unique and favorable geographical position to send and receive mail from all over the world. But other things were also sent and received, for smuggling was a powerful activity in the 18th and 19th century. You can still see the king's pipe, a brick chimney where smuggled tobacco would be burned, just a short walk down the hill from Harbour Lights. The Falmouth Dogs Company was formed in 1858 in order to keep the packet service by providing facilities to the new steam-driven ships of the time. Across the years, individuals and companies would hire these facilities, providing income and trade to the town. One such individual was William Cuff, 4th Earl of the Sart, who was traveling with his family when he was taken ill and shortly after passed away on his yacht in Falmouth Harbor. In this episode, we learn about his wife, Ellen Odette Cuff, Lady the Sart, best known in the context of Falmouth Cemetery for the enchanting sculpture that sits above her grave and the legend it has inspired. My name is Sherezai Garcia Rangel, and this is On the Hill. Okay, so you've brought me up to this one, up yes. quite a steep hill. Yes, yeah. <laughs> it is on the hill, the cemetery. A few weeks ago, I went for a walk in Falmouth Cemetery with my colleague from Falmouth University, Abigail Wincott. We made a stop at Eleanor Odette's grave. So this one is beautiful. Like, is that marble, maybe? I think so, yes. And um, it looks completely different to all the other It does. Graves. I mean, you, even if you look at it from, from any angle that you look at it, um, she stands out. Um, we're looking at the grave of Eleanor Odette and her husband, William O'Connor. Uh, they were both... Um, he was the Earl of the Sart, and she was the Countess of the Sart. Um, and they are nobility from Ireland. Okay. Yeah. So... What's the connection with Falmouth? Why are they buried here? Yeah, um, he, they were in sailing through Falmouth, Falmouth Bay, and he died in an accident here in the bay. Um, and she buried him here um, to be able to kind of do it quickly, I'm sure. Um, otherwise she probably would have taken him back to Ireland. And it's quite remarkable that she got away with a statue like the one we're looking at. Um, it's a, we're looking at a woman who's kneeling Um, she's holding her face uh, clearly in mourning. Um, she's wearing a veil. It's, it looks like a like a virgin figure, but um, it's the only statue of its kind in the cemetery. There's there's a tiny statue down the road, a little angel, but nothing like this one. She's quite remarkable. And what's the the figure holding? Look, I thought at first it's sort of biblical, but what is that? that she's got in her hand? She has a Celtic harp. I think it's a signifier of Ireland. Um, she, she does look very biblical. 
Um, but I think she made sure that it had that sign to remind them both of of Ireland and she was quite involved in society there. She was a Jewish woman, also involved with her Jewish community. Oh, okay. um, so it's not, there's not a cross or there's no, nothing else true. signifying. Not especially Christian. Yeah. Very interesting, I hadn't noticed. Yeah. But um, Cher, when you brought me up here, you said she was the most notorious or one of yeah. the most notorious <laughs> graves. Yes. Why? Um, there's a legend around her. So when, when she put the statue in, in 1898, um, the statue is the weeping woman. Um, and she was called the Weeping Widow because of um, her, her, her grief for William O'Connor. Um, she, when she brought herself to be buried here, and this is quite an interesting detail, she wrote her name, or she, she asked them to write her name on the grave even before she was dead. And if you take a look at the letters from when she says she's born, they're thinner than when she said she died because that was added after yeah. um, she she asked them she left uh, very specific instructions in her will um, we haven't found out for sure the details only that she left instructions in the will and they were carried out to open holes in in her coffin and the coffin was very very simple it was um, a wooden coffin and she asked them to open holes and the legend is that those holes were open in his coffin as well so that they could hold hands and they made them hold hands in there. Oh my God. Yeah, and that's that's why she's notorious. And one of our listeners actually shared how you're supposed to bring her flowers when you visit the cemetery so okay. that she doesn't haunt you. Oh, we didn't bring any flowers. <laughs> we didn't. <laughs> um, I owe her many flowers, she knows that. Yeah. Um, I will bring them when we're done with season one. Eleanor Bischofsheim was born in 18th Cornwall Terrace, Marylebone, London, on the 1st of September 1857. She was the eldest daughter of Henry Louis Bischofsheim, a banker and philanthropist, and his wife, Clarissa Wiedermann, who was originally from Vienna. Eleanor and her sister Amelie, who also went on to marry into Irish nobility, lived an inspiring life, surrounded by the political and artistic elite of the time and were imbued with the family's philanthropic spirit, with a special interest on Jewish charities. On the 27th of April, 1881, Ellen married William Ulick O'Connor, the fourth Earl of the Sart, at Christchurch Mayfair, in what was described as the wedding of the season. William's earldom was a title within the peerage of Ireland and made Ellen the Countess of the Sart. William was an ex-soldier, divorcee, and 12 years her senior. He had one child, Kathleen, from his previous marriage and was also a successful writer. In the course of his lifetime, he wrote and published over 10 mystery novels. When Ellen and William married, Ellen moved from London to the place which would become much more than her home. out in Kilkenny Town, Ireland, to meet the happy couple on their way to the marital home in Cuffs Grange. The village and the road 
were decorated with evergreens and banners to mark the occasion. The waving bride acknowledged the villagers and thanked them for their kindness, and William was known to comment that he wouldn't forget such a day for as long as he lived. Ellen and William's match was agreeable to all parties. It is also said that they were very much in love. Legend has it that when Ellen passed away, William's coffin was opened and their hands were joined in perpetuity when Ellen was buried with him. An article in the form of packet in July 1933 hints at this possibility. Holes in coffin. Last wish of Irish countess carried out at Falmouth. Ellen Odette, the fourth countess of Dessart, was buried at Falmouth on Tuesday. She died at Kilkenny, Ireland, and in accordance with her wish, her body was brought to Falmouth for internment. The deceased was 76 years of age. The coffin was of plain, thin elm without any fittings or breastplate, and at the conclusion of the funeral, six holes were cut or pierced in it by the undertaker's staff in pursuance of instructions given by the countess in her will. Roses, sweet peas, fern, and moss lined the grave. Lakes Falmouth Packet, 7th of July, 1933. The article shares no definite details about the joining of their hands. It is possible that if this took place, it wouldn't have been in the presence of the press or the public. The article highlights that in her will, at the request of Lady Desart, the burial was conducted according to Jewish rites, which can be recognized by the choice of a coffin of simple wood and the avoidance of metal in the absence of fittings and a breastplate. Whether the will holds further requests or not regarding the burial, we do not know. Both from somewhere else, Ellen and William found a beautiful common resting place at the top of a hill in Falmouth. The description of the gravestone reads, they were together in their lives and in their death they will not be divided. Ellen Odette's life changed after William's death. She would take a leading role in the development of Kilkenny and the furthering of Irish culture. Her actions both inspire and contradict. But before we share more of her life, let's learn a little bit about the time in which it took place. In Ireland in the 19th century, artists, intellectuals and politicians were concerned by the erosion of Irish culture. The Gaelic League, founded in 1893 by Owen McNeill and Douglas Hyde, was one of the movements which aimed to preserve it, with a specific focus on the Irish language. This was the same year that the second Irish Home Rule Bill was introduced in Parliament passing in the House of Commons, but eventually defeated in the House of Lords, the second of four bills which would eventually lead to the Irish Free State in 1922 and later on to the Republic of Ireland. The tensions between the Kingdom of Ireland and the United Kingdom had been continuous since the beginning of the century, and a search for the reinstatement of Irish identity was one of the cultural responses to it. The principal aim of the Gaelic League was the revival of the Irish language in everyday life, from which it had been displaced by English, through weekly gatherings, periodicals and hosted conversation meetings. The Gaelic League expanded the interest in Irish culture and language. The interest in the topic was wide at the time, 
and in less than five years, the league had over 400 branches. One of its successes was to have Irish included in the school curriculum. Similar cultural movements had been formed in parallel, and the league had fraught relationships with other movements of the time. And although initially it was a strictly non-political association, with time, this clause was let go, and the league became involved in politics from 1915 onwards, a change which drove a separation between founders McNeil and Hyde. The efforts of the Gaelic League continue more than a century later. In April 2011, it was calculated that Irish pickers' numbers are over a million and seven hundred thousand. the fourth Earl of Essart died, the title passed to William's brother, Hamilton, who had no heirs, and so the family lineage petered out with him in 1934, a year after Ellen Odette died. But when Hamilton took the title, Ellen moved, rather reluctantly so, to a house built on the outskirts of Kilkenny. She became a member of the Gaelic League, and it is said that her love of Irish heritage and culture had grown from an understanding of the persecution and oppression of the Jewish identity, and notably its language Hebrew. Lady Desart was a major advocate for promoting Irish national identity through traditional craft methods. In 1905, she funded the renovation of a mill on the banks of the River Nore, where she had established Green Vale wooden mills. It's probable that much of the renovation was conducted by the Kilkenny Woodworkers' Company. The Woods Workers' Company was funded and grown in part to contribute Irish craftsmanship to the popular arts and craft movement at the time. Arts and craft was a style derived from medieval design, and one notable representative is William Morris, who was a close friend of Ellen Odette's brother-in-law, Captain the Honorable Otway Cuff. Lady Desart's own home at even was an example of the movement. Along with her brother-in-laws, Hamilton and Otway Cuff, Ellen commissioned the building of the village of Talbot's Inch, just outside of Kilkenny, in order to provide safe accommodation for the workers of the Woolen Mills and the Kilkenny Woodworkers Company. The model village still stands today and consists of 26 houses. Residents had use of a purpose-built billiards room and a concert hall, and in order to ensure the easy passage from home to the Woolen Mill, Lady Desart funded the construction of a small suspension bridge in 1912. Her crowning glory, or even hospital, was situated within this village and officially opened in 1915. It is now the oldest private hospital in Ireland. In 1910, Lady Desart furnished the Carnegie Public Library on the banks of the Nor and claimed it would be, and I quote, a dwelling whence Irish thought and Irish learning would radiate with all vivifying power, end quote. She donated the land to the people of Kilkenny and, in return, was awarded a silver key, becoming the first woman to be awarded the honor of the freedom of the city, which is conferred upon extraordinary citizens. There is much to say about this remarkable woman, 
But before we continue to learn more about Ellen Cove, let's go back to Fama Cemetery and learn a little bit more about its history. When we think about Victorian cemeteries, Gothic images of forlorn angels in mourning, mausoleums, and secluded family vaults overgrown by brambles might pop into our mind, courtesy of a range of popular culture films and books which interpret them so. The wearing of time is upon all of those gravestones, on our memories of those buried there, and as we cling to the loss softened by distance, we have reinterpreted these spaces as places for a dog walk, a photography session, or a summer walk. In laying out a ground, much taste must be exhibited, but there are two extremes to be avoided, namely a meagre barrenness or a too profuse expenditure. A cemetery should not be planted like a pleasure ground, neither should it be left bare of appropriate vegetation. There are many trees, shrubs, and perennial herbaceous plants adapted for cemeteries which are appropriate in appearance and, from their character, useful in absorbing the gases of animal decomposition in their growth. It is fascinating to look back and retrace the documents that narrate the history of these cemeteries, for they explain clearly and without room for doubt what was the purpose of every costly inch of that land, and more interestingly so, how cemeteries would need to be laid out. Well-kept roads and walks, with a neatly trimmed surface of grass, judiciously diversified with trees, shrubs, and grave spaces planted with flowers, will present a more appropriate appearance than serried rows of headstones and clumsy tombs designed without taste and crowded together without judgment, glaring and tawdry when new, neglected dirty ruins and moss-grown in their age. No amount of original expense can compensate for aftercare. Many graveyards present a bitter satire upon human vanity and testify to the hypocrisy and brevity of paraded sorrow. Robert Rawlison, Esquire, Superintendent Inspector, 1854. Sir Robert Rawlison, the superintendent we have been following, was one of the forces deployed by Victorian England to regulate the living conditions of the towns across the kingdom. In the fragment we just heard, it wasn't only the cemetery, but the morning itself that needed to be regulated, which materials and how they were brought in had also to be decided upon in advance. All materials, gravestones and monuments must be conveyed into the burial ground by hand, or in carts, or on trucks with wheels of no less than three-inch tyre, and no horse, cart or vehicle shall be permitted in the burial grounds, except the main road, without special permission from the board. Falmouth Burial Ground Regulations, published by Order of the Board, John J. Skinner, Clerk and Registrar, Falmouth, 2nd of December, 1856. This is why the grave of William Cough and Eleanor that Cough is even more remarkable. The carved block of limestone which bears the inscriptions and carries the sculpture of the weeping widow, as well as this lady herself, contradicts the edicts of Sir Robert Rawlinson. The process of bringing her in and laying the limestone on the grave would have certainly been cumbersome, and yet she's there, and has been a feature of the cemetery since 1898. Costly as the sculpture would have been, it's hard to see it from the lens Robert Rawlinson described if you know a little bit about Ellen Odette, 
There doesn't seem to be any of that human vanity, hypocrisy, or paraded sorrow in the woman who will come yearly to be near her beloved, not in her heartbreaking expression of genuine sorrow. And as there is more to learn about her, we ask you to keep that image in your mind of the weeping widow, with a shawl over her hair flowing down as she watches over the grave of her William with her Irish harp at her side. Apart from her community projects, Ellen Odette was a notable Irish citizen in other ways. From 1908 to 1933, she was the president of the Women's Committee. She succeeded her brother-in-law, Captain Odway Cuff, as the president of the Gaelic League in 1912, and from 1922 to 1933, she was appointed a senator of the Irish Free State, being the first Jewish woman to be awarded this anywhere in the world. She also contributed to the running of the London Poor Jewish Temporary Shelter, and as such was responsible for the rescue of 300,000 Jewish women and children during the Great East to West Migration at the turn of the century. But her attachment to her Jewish faith and culture was questioned sometimes. One of those on an issue of the Jewish Guardian in September 1930, to which she adamantly responded saying, and I quote, The unwarrantable assumption in your issue of the 5th of September that I have asserted the faith of my fathers. Will you please contradict that unfounded statement in your next issue? I am, as I have always been, a staunch and practicing U.S., far too proud of my faith and race not to feel extremely indignant at the slur you have tried to cast on me. End quote. She remained true to her Jewish faith all her life, and she served on the committees of a number of Jewish charities. Images of Lady Desart range from a beautiful young lady on an oil painting, wearing a bow at the top of her head, to a photo of her and William, dressed to the nines in the fashions of the time, to a portrait of a matron with grey hair and pince-nez glasses, rumored to be very strong, as she was known for her poor eyesight. Eleanor Dead was also a woman of contradictions. She stood against women's suffrage, believing that women and politics should not mix, despite her own prominence in the political sphere. She also rejected the integration of the National Health Insurance Scheme in 1911. This deduction was intended to create a fund that would pay household staff in the event of illness, 
Eleanor that refused to pay this, claiming that, and I quote, insurance would merely set class against class and destroy the beautiful harmony between mistress and maid. It is said that anti-suffragetism favored a specific gender roles in an effort to protect the traditional domains of women. Eleanor that is quoted in an article from the Northern Week dated February 1913, saying, and I quote, employees did not desire to insure as they were always paid full wages during illness, end quote. These views supported a class system in which roles were to be maintained and respected, a system which sustained her position and influence. Lady Desart died in Dublin 1933 at the age of 76. Upon her wishes, her body was brought to Falmouth, where she was buried with her husband. The weeping woman which sits above their grave is made of Kilkenny limestone. Back home in Kilkenny, Lady Desart remains ever-present in the town's memory. In 2014, a pedestrian bridge was built and named in her honor. Lady Desart used her privilege to influence Irish society and support Jewish people. A myriad of identities merged in this remarkable and complicated woman, and the memory of her work and person is still present more than half a century later. We will now hear Amy Lilwell's creative response to the life of Eleanor Delkoff. As the crows surf on the low wind towards the next gravestone, and the next, and the next, the eye is drawn to you, Ellen Odette, stooped beside a tall grave. Sometimes you wring your hands, chase your gaze behind a soaring crow, tell him about all the various things. This year, that court case, can you imagine, William, the maids are up in arms. Before that, the design for Talbot's inch, the fittings at Orteven, then the mill, but that was a while ago now. You sought his counsel about the smaller things too, I'm sure. What you are reading. A novel, perhaps. One of his again? Or the newspaper whilst being thrown about on the Irish Sea on the way here. What did you do, Ellen Odette, when you were free of all of this? I would like to see you somewhere else now. There is a picture of you as a child, hair curled, a ribbon. Small, probably. Here she is. You. She bounces down the stairs, dressed just above her ankles. She has so many moments to fill up with nicer things. She takes one now in order to chase a pigeon from the front steps. She is told to behave. Father is not there today, nor was he yesterday. She asks for an apple and is given one. She turns the light around it, bites it, bends to see if the well-trodden path, smoothed by swishing dresses, is simply a trick of the light. Her sister reads by the fire, tells Ellen not to crouch on the floor, not to eat with her mouth open, not to walk around eating. I knew you weren't really reading, she replies. You watch Amelie, her legs still. It was easier to be you, either of you, than the maid who handed you the apple. You knew this, didn't you, even when you were small. Your father was rich, the maid was not. His daughter was rich, hers was not. Who decided that, you wondered? 
Now you are a debutante in silk. Your trained skirt cascades gauze flounces. You see many gentlemen, but then you notice one. Moustache combed, feet turned out. You'd heard of him, well, the rank he occupied. Something of a writer. Is that how you described him to your friends? I see him cupping your small hand, patting the knuckles. He looks about for somewhere to stand his cane. He has a broad chin, I hear you say. Your sister rolls her eyes. He's a divorcee, says your mother. He likes to hunt and shoot and yacht about the sea. He has a child. Is Ellen to be a stepmother? But there is a gap in the usual resources, says your father. He is an earl. You are peeping at the door. And Amelie will do extremely well, will she not? He turns from the waist, talks over his shoulder at the floor. Are you happy, Ellen? He says and you hop back behind the frame. I know you are there, Ellen, turning fully around. Do you like him? You do. You marry him. Cheering crowds part as you roll through Cuffs Grange and along to the house, your face against the window like Elizabeth seeing Pemberley for the first time. You would have read that novel, wouldn't you? You ask to read his stories. He smirks at the word stories but gives them to you. When you were born, you realise to him aloud, all of Ireland was broken. Yes, I suppose it was, he replies, turning a newspaper page. Indeed, when I was born, he whispers back, you sparkled behind God's eyes, he says, and promised to make it all good again. I would have liked him to say that to you, although probably he didn't, not in so many words. Someone must have told you how special you could be. He checks his watch, takes leave of you, there will be shooting in the coppice before noon, you retrieve his newspaper, drift off to the library. And here you are together, in Falmouth. I see that stone angel landed, feet first, upon you, as if of all the heartbreak in the graveyard, yours has called her down. She keeps you company during your sombre vigil. She keeps him company when you are back in Ireland, her harp at her side. You brush the dead leaves from her foot, look down at your own name already next to his, Resume your perusal of the clouds. I don't think this town has your heart, Ellen Odette, not like Kilkenny. Is this really to be your final resting place? It must, I believe, have been true love. I feel you now pulling his coat around him as if it were around the whole world. The boat carves up the Helford Passage. Wear a scarf, won't you? You'll catch a chill. He nods, hooks his finger against your cheek creeps out onto the deck. By the next morning you are cooling his head with a damp linen, sending for a doctor. By the evening you are sat in his cabin, holding his hand. You must, I think, look at the gilded picture frames, the velvet cushions, the shine of the dark wood. There is nowhere else to look. Then back at the closed face. But my husband, you say to the doctor, was in the military. My husband, you say, was a reckless horseman. How could he have died on his yacht? I wonder if it was his death that caused your feelings to surge, your fingers to sprinkle seeds into his ashes. You return to Kilkenny, ascend the front steps, pulling your legs up slowly, a letter from Amelie perched in your brown-gloved fingers. You turn left into the library to sit and read it. You are offered tea, you shake your head, hat still pinned, no. There is a new earl, yes, you are aware. But he will wait a while before taking the house. Why on earth would he do that? To give you some time, my lady, to, well, adjust. I mean, you say, 
Why would he take the house? You will remember that moment on the yacht, the gilding, the velvet. The new house will have none of it. Nor will the new house be exclusively for you, you say. Money is for worthier deeds, you say. And widowhood is a busy time. Do all of those good things. He'd leaned from his horse and squeezed your hand. Won't you? Perhaps that was a dream, but your knuckles huddle as if gripped. One day, you think, you might open a hospital there. For now, you assure the correct placement of your books on the new shelves. There is a squat limestone building in the middle of town. Your mind climbs its entrance pillars, stands on its cupola and looks out over the gnaw to the church steeples. It will need furniture. Fine. Perhaps a lady's room. Crowds roll out in folds to hand you a silver key. The library is yours, you tell them, for radiating Irish thought from the centre to the sea. Your hand in your pocket warms the silver teeth. What next, you say to him the following year, dispersing a handful of crows from an oak. The ship sways back to Ireland now. You think about the letters unread on your desk, the workers padding home across the bridge as the sun slips into the hills, new windows filled with children's faces and orange glow. These people will not pay to be looked after, William. That kind of practice is for other towns. Ours is a beautiful place, you nod to yourself. Your mind climbs stone walls again, up over the lidded windows to the rooftops and chimney stacks of a larger building. White-covered heads scurry about the front entrance, keeping death at bay. You chuckle, I think, this flight of fancy seeming far too ambitious, even for you. What with your brother gone, William? Can I really do that alone? You can. You do. You are grey now. Wiry glasses looping around your eyes, smile easing out a word or two with whomever you are looking at. You are restless, I think, while having your picture taken. Surely there are other things to be done. But I see you are excited. So many things have been done. This might have been just before you returned to Falmouth for the last time. They would have wanted you to stay, of course. They would have brought flowers to some allocated spot and thought about that cold crossing to England. Had he died in Kilkenny? they would have said to each other, or even Dublin, like you. Then you would have been laid to rest at home. As the crows surf on the low wind towards the next gravestone, and the next, and the next, the eye is drawn to both of you. You in gauze, William moustache-combed, holds his cane in one hand, your gloved fingers in the other. This creative piece is by Amy Lilwall. I had the opportunity to sit with Amy and ask her questions about her response. Here's my conversation with her. Hi, Amy. Thank you for sharing that with us. Thank you very much, Sherazad. It was a pleasure. Good to have you back on the hill. Yay! <laughs> I have a few questions about her. Uh-huh, okay. And about your piece, where we uh -huh. switch perspectives. Um, and I wanted first to know, is that something that you purposefully set out to do, or that's how it came to you? Um, I guess it's how it came to me in a way because I was really wondering how to approach this story. Mm. Um, this woman has done so many things or had done so many things over the course of her life that I just found myself continually 
balking at all of my research <laughs> and thinking, goodness, how am I going to extract one story from this? Mm. And then this voice just developed from, you know, from continually asking, <laughs> well, what are you doing here? Where are you going here? I've only got two photos of you. Let's explore that, you know, this kind yeah. of thing. So, yeah, um, yes, mm. I, I just thought it would be best to write a conversation between myself and Ellen Odette, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would be the best way to approach to kind of tackle that to tackle that so yeah. you are this eye i am the eye yes i thought so oh no i gave it all away but it's the people that we have more information from that those might be harder to write about mm-hmm. than the ones what do you think that is why do i think that is yeah. i think because you want to do this person justice mm. uh, and also because you've seen many other people writing about this particular person and there's mm. a little part of you that wouldn't want to call you out on something you've got wrong <laughs> yeah. so yeah there's that mm. as well you feel a tremendous pressure um mm. also there are so many bits that i didn't mention because i just thought it was too sensitive to broach mm. particular subjects so i really wanted to concentrate on the work that she did in her immediate community which was kilkenny okay you have build this story with a lot of clues about her life. Yeah. What do you think is the most interesting thing about her? Or a couple of the most interesting things about her? Wow. Um, ooh. <laughs> uh, thing one is that most of her community work took place after her husband's death. Mm-hmm. It was like she wanted to pour her energy into something else. Yeah. Or perhaps she lived in his shadow. And mm. so felt that she was powerless to all of that. Her brother, his brother, sorry, um, he succeeded um, William mm. uh, in becoming the fifth Earl of Desart. And so they did a lot of work together, the mm. Countess, Ellen Odette and Otway oh, right. Cuff. So perhaps it was his help that, that allowed her to be more, um, to, do, to pull off more projects in the community. Mm. Um, so I think that's, That's very interesting that she started that then. After, yeah. Um, afterwards, yeah. So notably, she built a lovely little village called Talbot's Inch. She built it. Well, she didn't build it herself, but <laughs> she commissioned someone to build it. Yeah. And the reason that she built this village was partly because she wanted somewhere for the workers of the woolen mill, which mm-hmm. she also founded, mm-hmm. to have somewhere nice to live. Oh, good. So that's lovely. They had um, uh, a games room and a little theatre and a billiards room. And it sounds very idyllic. Perhaps mm. the reality was a little <laughs> bit, um, I don't know, more austere. But um, yeah, I, I thought that that was just lovely and mm. apparently she um, had a little bridge built so that the uh, the workers could come backwards and forwards to work quite mm-hmm. safely across the north so and we have that bridge here in the story isn't it we do yes. have that bridge there in the story yes mm. the family's padding home after work yes um so and then uh, i guess the crowning glory of all of that was the hospital uh, mm. at even which is still a hospital today oh, so yes that was built because of her she founded that yeah absolutely Wonderful. um so that they're they're all very interesting that's you know real details about what she actually did mm. um Thing two that was interesting, and I believe we were going to speak about this yes, during over the course right of the interview. Written for a, really, a question? <laughs> a question? <laughs> okay, yes. well, perhaps I'll let you ask that question. Um, she's a Jewish woman yes. in Ireland, yes. which is um, we we don't find in the cemetery a lot of Jewish people because it wasn't specifically a cemetery for Jewish people. There mm-hmm. are a couple there. She's one of them. Yeah. Um, 
and also it would have been rare, I would imagine, for a Jewish person to be part of the Irish nobility of the time. Uh-huh. But we have the question as writers of yeah. whether we are the right people not being part of that community uh-huh. to tackle their stories. We yes. have discussed that on our own. Yeah. Um, mm. I don't have an answer to no, you. No, I mean, it's tricky because, I mean, she's... She probably lived a very different life to many Jewish people of the day. Yeah. So there are reflections that we can make around her position in society. Mm. I mean, she was part, as you say, of the nobility, so she probably had quite a nice life. Mm. Um, she went to become, uh, went on to become a senator of the Free Irish State, um, which was, from my readings, um, uh, it, it kind of promoted. Uh, not only female participation, but um, diversity in religions. Mm. So that mm-hmm. would have actually not helped her, but, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, bringing that to the table was mm. certainly something that they, they sought at the yeah. time, I imagine. Um, uh, with regards to the work that she did throughout her life, she mm. was president of the Women's Committee, and part of that role involved um, rescuing over 300,000 Jewish women and children um, and bringing them over to, well, I I don't think it was necessarily the UK or Ireland, but to safety. To safety. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So there are are lots of stories there which I personally wouldn't touch upon because Mm. of the the issues of of appropriation that we were talking about just now. Um, But I imagine that their stories were very dissimilar to her own. So, Mm -hmm. you know... um, yeah, tricky, isn't it? Is it is tricky, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. And it's something that we're asking out of, out of all of the people we write about mm-hmm. in the in the podcast, do we have the right to write mm-hmm. about them? Um, mm-hmm. They're they're no longer there to mm-hmm. contradict what we say about their lives or mm-hmm. um, maybe illuminate things that we didn't know about them. Yeah, absolutely. And we definitely try to do it from respect and, and kind mm-hmm. of humility but it's a question that we'll keep on answering mm. and asking um, as we go on because I think we have to be careful and mindful that yeah. we're treading on someone else's life absolutely but also um, hers is different because she was privileged mm-hmm. from what I can tell but she was certainly privileged she's been given a lot of voice by many different people researching right. her life and she was such a prominent member of the the community that, that actually her story can be heard to a certain extent we don't know the the, the tiny details but mm-hmm. we know that she she lived a full um and interesting life definitely but the people she rescued I wouldn't want to speak on behalf of, no. of them and what they went through. Very different situations, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an interesting thing you told me earlier about her, mm. is that even though she was involved in protecting women and protecting mm. their rights, it seems like she was against suffragettes. Is that right? Yeah, apparently so, which is weird. It is weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I don't quite know the details. I just read in... Um, a couple of articles that I found in the newspaper archives that she she stood against the suffragette, suffragettes believing that women 
apparently, I'm paraphrasing here, didn't um, belong in politics. That was men's work mm. and that um, women should stay at home, really, which yeah. is strange because it completely contradicts her own position That's in, in <laughs> yeah. Irish society. She became a senator for the Free Irish State, as I said, and... Yeah. Maybe she changed her mind in the end. Maybe she set herself apart from, you know, um, non-middle-class women. Well, she wasn't even middle-class. She was high society. So, Mm -hmm. yes, I don't know, to be honest with you, what that was all about. But I'd love her to be (laughs) here so I could ask her. Definitely. Yeah. I bet she would be great to talk to. Yeah, (laughs) I bet she would be. Mm. Um, Pemberley shows up. Oh, yeah. In your story. Oh, yeah. Tell me about that. Um, well, so Pemberley mm-hmm. is the, yes, <laughs> you know what Pemberley is, of course. it's the grand house in Pride and Prejudice that belongs to Swoon, Mr. Darcy. Um, <laughs> is that so, why it's in the story, in in mm-hmm. that intertextuality of a couple that uh-huh. loved each other, honestly? Well, I just tried to think of how she would feel when mm. she was kind of meandering down the driveway to desert court um in i don't know it wouldn't have been a car it would have probably been horses and carriages or Mm. i doubt they walked and i just my brain reproduced this image of elizabeth (laughs) doing the same thing and i thought hang on a minute she may well have read that right and i suppose with regards to the story because i kind of talk about the library Mm -hmm. um and the fact that her husband was a writer i i wanted to include a reference to literature just to kind of support that theme um so there we go is that wise do you mean do do, no i think that's lovely do i think that they loved each other enough to be to be elizabeth and darcy well when (laughs) she sees pemberley she doesn't really know darcy in fact she thinks he's a bit of a yeah, she doesn't she like him. She's a bit stuck well, up. Well, she's like yeah. changing her mind. It's right around the time. When yeah, she well, you her would mind. if you saw that house. <laughs> <laughs> and the yeah. walks and the park and the yeah. yeah, that's where it starts. I think that's where she uh-huh. begins to kind of rethink things. Hmm, Maybe. interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, now there's a perhaps Eleanor that is the most notorious grave from Falmouth Cemetery. Mm-hmm. You can see her from the road. Um, is the only one that has such a big statue. There's only a small statue yeah. of a little angel further down the hill. Um, and there are lots of Celtic crosses and big graves and family vaults, but statues, hers is really the, the main one mm. and the, basically the only one. It's a white statue too, so it, against all the darker grey or black graves, it, it shows up really well. Um, and we have heard that there's this legend about her. Mm. Um, that she had instructed um, people to open a hole in her coffin and open a hole in William's coffin and make them hold hands. Mm. We haven't found for sure no. that that is true. Yeah. Yeah. No, we haven't found for sure that that is true. I kind of want it to be true, but at the same time, I kind of don't because there were 30 years difference yeah. between that. I mean, the mind boggles. But... Um, uh, yeah, there's a little reference to that in the final yes, line. There is, yes. <laughs> About, I hope that he is holding her hands. Yes. Ghostly hands. Yeah, with gloved <laughs> fingers, yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know, but we, we discussed this. Um, so... During this episode, Alex has read out a piece um, mm-hmm. about the fact that six holes were, were 
drilled in her coffin and again that's um i had a little look into this a very brief look into this and i believe that's because she's of the jewish faith so she had very simple coffin with holes drilled in it in order Mm. that the body and the coffin decompose and be returned to the earth quickly um i wonder if somewhere along the line this odd request Mm. um was elaborated upon and embellished and it turned into the fact that there were there was one hole drilled in each coffin and they are now holding hands (laughs) um yeah yeah so i I don't know to be honest with you but Mm. mm. it's interesting i think when she was buried when he she was buried in the Mm -hmm. grave um that's reported like you said alex reed said earlier but um, she had already been probably notorious because she had come to visit him mm. every year, stayed with him a couple of um, days. We have that in the story as well. And I would imagine that the people in the town were curious, this yeah. stranger, uh-huh. uh, a member of the nobility. They would have been curious about that, Yeah, of the Irish nobility, mm. is coming and hanging out in this cemetery with mm. her, the statue. Mm. Um, dedicated to her husband and in the grave there's her name already which I found that's that's what makes me want to believe even more that they're holding hands because she was very purposeful about being there Um, but that detail also comes up in your story that she's there that Mm -hmm. she very specifically sat there um, decided to be there even though Kilkenny was her home, even though Ireland was her home. Mm. Um, and I, it made me wonder about this relationship between home and resting place, mm. which seems to be broken for a lot of people in the Falmouth Cemetery specifically. Um, do you want to talk about that? Um, mm, yeah. I, I wonder if she had a very kind of practical... Um, approach to this mm. um, result in that she she just thought she simply wouldn't care once she was dead but that that couldn't be the case because obviously she made a huge decision to to you know to have her body transported back to Falmouth yeah. um, when she died um, so I don't know what the intention there was I wonder if we do go on to explore William Cuff's life, mm. um, if that would reveal something by way of tradition. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, maybe. husbands and wives are buried together traditionally. That's right. Yeah. Um, but perhaps because of their rank, um, there was a little bit more structure around that. Um, mm. Yeah. I don't know. I'd mm. just like to believe that she was absolutely in love <laughs> with him and just simply wanted to return well, to, to him. him. Yeah. Um, the Crows. Oh, the crows. So a couple of days ago, I was walking in the cemetery, and the yeah. cemetery has these big, fat, beautiful black crows. Yes. Clearly very at ease where yeah. they are. Um, so that, knowing the cemetery, immediately brought me there. Um, tell me about them. Why did you choose the image of the crows to cycle around the story? Um, I guess because it's a, uh, it gives you quick and easy access to that image of the cemetery yeah. as a writer. Um, because I've also been to the cemetery on several Mm -hmm. occasions and they are very present. (laughs) They are. Yeah. Um, 
kind of eerily so actually mm-hmm. because you do associate crows with all things sinister yeah. and so to see an abundance of them just lurking on gravestones yeah. is a little bit disconcerting um so yeah uh, it gives you quick access to that particular image mm-hmm. um yeah i think that's probably about yeah. it i know you're looking for a more interesting no, answer. i've always believed that crows are very intelligent i don't know where they i are. heard that they from, are they can recognize so. faces and yeah they have rituals and things like that they they use tools yeah they're very smart yeah. so there's this idea of omniscience there mm. as well that they kind of know what's going on yeah um and they would have seen her come they would have seen her come yeah, yeah definitely visit and visit him there seems to be also an echo. I don't know if you meant it or just I just saw it there between mm-hmm. crowds and crows there. Oh, look at that. Parting for her and kind of coming together and she like sending them off and they're coming back. Yeah. Yes, yes, Sherazade, that's exactly <laughs> what I meant. Um, tell me about the ending. We talked about it a little earlier, but I quite like that we seem to have maybe ghosts now. Yeah, let's have some ghosts. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Again, because of the, the nature of the person... It's pretty hard to say, um, and then she died, the end, (laughs) really, Um, because there's so much there that's unsaid. And Mm -hmm. so nowhere for me felt like a relevant place to stop the story. So I know in the paragraph before I talk about the fact that she passed away in Dublin. Mm -hmm. um, But then I just thought there's so much more to say. So actually, repeating the first line, the first image, Mm -hmm. having that circular effect, Mm yeah, kind of made it easier for me to end it. It's as if it hasn't really ended at all, I suppose. Yeah, yeah so we have ghosts, obviously. <laughs> it's a graveyard. Doing ghosts. Yeah. yeah, and then also there's this this um, this story about the fact that they're holding hands. Mm. Um, so I, I wanted them to hold hands, but not like that, really. I mm-hmm. mean, yeah, if that actually happened, great. But we don't know. So it would be nice to see them, you know, dressed in the attire that they they wore at the the debutante ball oh, okay. which um, that's why we have the mustache comb that's why you have the combed mustache and the cane yeah and nice. she's in silk um oh, yeah and the cane yes mm. i don't know if that happened by the way that's complete fabrication mm-hmm. the but, debutante ball yeah but yeah. i mean she was a she was a member of high society so mm. i imagine she had some sort of coming out yeah yeah mm. all right um, I'm going to ask you a different question and then the normal question to oh. end our interview. Okay. So you can think about it. This, it, this is where the tricky questions <laughs> come in, isn't it? Um, my question would be, she seems, and we know the reason maybe, because he was him and he was there, to have decided where to be buried. Hmm. Do you have any thought similar to that? Is there a place you would want to? Oh my goodness. Um, wow. You're safe, Amy. <laughs> I don't mean this in any wrong way. I just wondered. Oh, wow, that's such an excellent question. You caught me completely off guard. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't decide if I w- decided if I want to be cremated yet mm-hmm. or buried. Um, so, But where would I like to rest? Hmm. Ooh. Yeah, so this is something I have thought about lately because I've got an idea for a, for a next book, actually. So I won't go into that now. No, no. But I, I imagine, actually, funnily <laughs> enough, with my husband. Mm-hmm. So we have touched on something there, haven't yeah, we? Yeah, Wherever we, that may be. Look at that. Be. So that must have been how she felt. <laughs> oh. mm. um, all right. And now the question. Oh, yes. What would your gravestone say? Oh, you asked me this last time, I didn't did. you? It's because I didn't <laughs> answer properly, did now I? Now you can answer properly. <laughs> 
Uh, that's good again and again. <laughs> um, what would my gravestone say? Cheesy. Maybe, yeah, let's go cheesy, like, all you need is love. Or, mm. or let's go cheeky, um, like, uh, it was the, the, or the soup was off, or something like that. <laughs> Goodness. Okay, I'm going to stop this now. <laughs> um, thank you so much, Amy. Thank you, Sherazad. They get creepier and creepier. <laughs> I know, I bet they do. Amy asked me to make an amendment in the interview where she says that Odway Cuff was the brother to succeed William as the fifth Earl of the Sard. That's actually incorrect. It was Hamilton. Odway Cuff did work with Helen very closely. Um, they both were part of the Gaelic League and they both worked in their projects together. Thanks for listening to episode 6 of On the Hill. Thanks to Krellis, or as they were originally known, the famous session band, for sharing their recordings of their performances of Irish folk music with us for this episode. Thanks Abigail for accompanying me to visit Ellen Odette, and thank you Amy for sharing with us your intriguing and second piece for On the Hill and your research of her life and her accomplishments. Stay with us as in each episode we discover a new story, learn more about the cemetery, relate the historical account of someone who once lived, and share a creative response from one of our writers. You can lend us a hand by telling somebody about this podcast. Please rate, review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. It sounds like little, but it helps a lot. Find us on Twitter at We Are On The Hill or find us on Facebook at We Are On The Hill. You can also get in touch with us by email at weareonthehill at gmail.com. On the Hill is written, recorded, and produced in Falmouth by me with the help of amazing local people and a host of talented writers. Research about Falmouth Cemetery by me. Research about Eleanor Dead Cough by Amy Leobel and me. Fragments from the Lakes Falmouth Packet, Sir Robert Rawlinson's report, and the Falmouth Boreal Ground Regulations read by Alex Horn. Creative piece by Amy Leobel. This episode was edited by me. Our theme song is Precious Things by We Are Muffy. Join us again next month for our next episode. I am Sherezade Garcia Rangel, and this is On the Hill.